Amen. Um, I want to encourage you to turn with me um, in your Bibles to the book of Acts. If you have been with us over these last several months, you know we have walked our way through the book of Acts. We took a break for the summer to be in the Psalms, and last week we returned to this early Christian narrative, um, the book of Acts. And tonight we're going to look at a scene from Acts chapter 26. And it's when the Apostle Paul appears before a leader, a political ruler named Agrippa, and another one named Festus. It's a pretty pivotal scene in this tail end of the book of Acts. And as is our custom, we'll be pairing um, this reading from Acts with a reading from the opposite testament, in this case, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, The Deuteronomy reading will be short, the Acts reading will be lengthy. So I want to encourage you to listen closely to this God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. In Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. And this is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for none of this has been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we pray that in this moment you would do the thing that only you can do, and it's the thing that you have promised to do in moments like these. And that is, by the power of your Spirit, that you would shine light on this, your word. Lord, would you shine light on the words that I've prepared, and would you use these words to great effect in our hearts and in our souls tonight. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. Amen. So recently this summer, a couple months ago, or I guess a few weeks ago to a month ago, um, the Busby family, so this would be Mandy and I and our children, along with another family and friends of ours, went to a water park in Coleman. Now, I don't know what you're thinking about when you think of a water park in Coleman, but it's not what you're thinking. It's great. This water park is incredible. And uh, we were, me and my boys, Henry and Leland, we were on the slide. And uh, when we get to the top of the slide, we notice that there's a young boy about eight years old who is standing behind us, and he's, 
inching ever so closer to us. Um, he was really wanting to get up this, this slide and up these stairs. And if we, uh, if we didn't kind of quickly move up the stairs, he would poke us and tell us to, like, keep going. This, is, this young boy is just all over us, right? At, at one point, we look back at him, and I promise you, out of the blue, he looks at us, eight years old, and says, where do y'all go to church? <laughs> and we said, well, we go to a church called Grace Fellowship. And he said, you ought to be going to First Baptist Spring Bowl. <laughs> and we looked at him and said, well... Um, and I think one of the boys, my boys, said, well, our dad's the pastor, so we have to go to Grace Fellowship. <laughs> and the boy just looked back and was like, kind of like, you don't have to. <laughs> it was bold. And throughout this time of tracing our way through this book of Acts, we have seen scene after scene after scene of bold witness. In tonight's text, we get to, for the book of Acts, as far as the book of Acts is concerned, kind of peak bold witness. See, all the roads of the book of Acts, at least when Paul's journey is taken up in Acts chapter 9, all the roads of Paul's life and ministry throughout this narrative is making its way to this moment where he is finally called before the rulers of the day to give defense of his ministry. So we have boldness here. And I think this text is supposed to tell us at least something about bold witness. But I don't think that's the only thing this passage does. So let me tell you another sort of vignette story. I'm a pastor, um, which means all day long I um, do lots of different things, including preparing sermons, but perhaps the way I spend the vast majority of hours in my week is sitting down and talking with folks from our church one-on-one -on -one about Christian faith. And in almost seven years of doing this, it never ceases to amaze me that when I'm sitting down having a conversation about Christian faith with someone from our church or other places for that matter, it never ceases to amaze me how many times in the conversation about Christian faith I feel the need to lean across the table to touch my friend on their arm and simply say to them, but you know, that's really not what Christians believe. In other words, this text gives us a glimpse into bold witness, but this text also gives us a glimpse into what Christian faith is really about. See, Christianity is about, ready, Jesus. Christianity specifically is about 
Jesus, his person, who he is, and his work, what he has done. Christianity is about Jesus, his person, and his work. Christianity is about the fact that Jesus Christ has met you and me. It's the main thing I want you to hear tonight. Christianity is about Jesus and what he has done for you. And we're going to get to see this as we see Paul give bold witness in this chapter. So what I want to do, I want to outline for you basically three parts of Paul's speech. This is the longest of all of Paul's speeches in this section of Acts. It's a pivotal moment, and whatever it is that Paul says before Festus and Agrippa is very central to what Christianity is about, and we want to trace it. So we're going to look at three parts of Paul's speech. And as we go, I want to talk to you about your own heart and soul. So let's begin together. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. He begins by saying, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today. How do we get here? Well, last week when we looked at Acts chapter 21, we learned that Paul decides he's going to boldly go to Jerusalem. He's warned by prophetic vision that it's not going to go well for him there, that he will be bound. And from that moment forward, it, and it unfolds just like that. He goes to Jerusalem, he's bound. He becomes a prisoner. And the chapters that proceed from Acts 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 is essentially Paul having to go before these different levels of government and civic leaders to give defense for his ministry. It happens in chapter 21, it happens in chapter 22, it happens in 23, it happens in chapter 24. In chapter 25, Paul wants to give defense, but he realizes that he's, going, he's being treated unjustly by the laws and the customs so he appeals to Caesar, I want my case to be heard all the way up through the Roman justice system. See, Paul doesn't think he needs the government rulers to be on the same page with him to bear witness, but he definitely wants to use the laws and the customs. He wants to use the structures of justice and righteousness in order to preserve his opportunity to witness to Christ. And he's not afraid to do that. He says, I want my case to be heard through the Roman system. And it begins, that whole process begins with him standing now before a Roman governor named Festus. This is someone who was a figure a lot like Pilate. And then he's going to testify before a figure named Agrippa. Agrippa is a great, great grandson and grandson and son of the Herods. The Herod that, put, that seek to put Jesus to death in, in his infancy. The Herods who put Jesus on trial. The, the Herods who behead John the Baptist. The Herods who killed James earlier in the, the text, in the book of Acts. So he's appeared before both Sort of Jewish power and Roman power combined. And here's the first part of Paul's speech. If I were taking notes, I'd write part one. 
and then I'd write to the side, Jesus met me. See, Paul begins his speech by saying, listen, Jesus met me. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul begins by talking about his personal encounter with Christ. My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Um, Paul's given kind of a flyover of his life. He's saying, everyone who's accused me knows that I was indeed a Jew of the strictest sense. I was actually a Pharisee. He goes on in verse 9. Listen to what he says. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but after receiving authority... And when they were put to death, I even cast in my vote against them. Paul's just telling his history and his story here. Saying, I was, I was a Jew, I was a Pharisee. And by the way, I even did everything possible to oppose the name of Christ. This is Paul's way of saying, I didn't believe this stuff. I didn't want to believe this stuff. I didn't want to follow him. I, didn't, I was not interested in that. In fact, I was opposed to it. But then in verse 14, he says, But I was on this road, and I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's Paul's way of saying, Jesus Christ met me. So what was I supposed to do? Do you remember when Jesus met you? Do you remember that? For some of you in the room, it's a sudden moment when Christ met you. It's a lot like the Apostle Paul. I could look around the room and I can pick out some of those people here tonight. For some of us, it's a more gradual kind of introduction. It began perhaps at baptism. And begin to meet Jesus slowly but surely in Sunday school classes and at different things. You, you began to meet Christ. For some of you, Jesus met you in a fresh way with his fresh grace and mercy even this week. See, Christianity is about Jesus. And it's about him having met us. It's noteworthy that Paul's witness focuses so much energy on the ways in which the resurrected Jesus met him. I have a mentor and professor from seminary who has this dramatic story of having met Christ. He was basically, it's a long story, but he's in the floorboard of a car. It is lowest possible moments, and he says he remembers crying out, Lord Jesus, if you were real, if you were there, then I need your help. And the Lord Jesus met that professor of mine on that roadside. 
Several years ago, I got to go to this pastor's conference in New England, and it was interesting because it was a pastor's conference of a relatively small amount of pastors. There's like 30 pastors in the room. They're all from New England. I'm the only one from Birmingham. All 29 of them came to faith in Christ in adulthood. And listen to this. Listen to what happened. Every one of them, without exception, somebody told them the truth about Christ, who he is and what he's done, and without exception, every single one of them, Christ met them in that moment, and they came to faith in Christ. So Christianity is about Jesus having met you and me. But it's more than just that. It's also about this Jesus who meets you and me. This Jesus has done some things for you and me. And this is kind of part two of Paul's speech. I would write part two, and then in Paul's words, Jesus has done things. Look with me at verse 22. Paul goes on to say, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. See, Paul appeals to the... The only phrase I know to call it is the having had happenedness of Christianity. See, Christianity is unique in that it's irreducibly historical. Like it, it trades on the fact that this man, Jesus, did things, real things, in real time, and in real spaces, in real cities, and in real towns, on a real cross, a real empty tomb. It's interesting that, that, that Paul goes on to say that this ancient story of the Israelites is actually the world's true story. It has come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus who has gone to the cross and he's been raised from the dead. See, Paul wants Agrippa to know and Festus to know that this Jesus met him personally. And this Jesus who met him personally had accomplished some things for him. And that's incredibly important. You know, there was one night that Mandy and I were lying in bed together. This is several years ago. And we had one of those moments where we're laying next to each other, and we kind of look over at each other, and we just kind of say, um, you, do you think this is all real? And by, by, by this, we meant our faith. Like, this really is real, right? Like, you are on your way to being a pastor. This is really real, right? I'm on my way to being a pastor. I'm going to spend my vocational life trying to proclaim and announce the good news of Jesus to people and ask them to place all their faith and trust in the promises of God. Surely this is real, right? I wonder if you know what I mean. You see, I've noticed that sometimes we can reduce our faith down. Like in a not good way. So, so for example, sometimes we can tend to think our faith is 
only doctrinal content and information. That it's kind of a body of learning to accept, to kind of intellectually assent to. And trust me, Christianity comes with a body of doctrinal content to be believed, studied, learned, assented to intellectually, etc., etc., etc. But it's more than that. Or secondly, I've learned that sometimes we can reduce our faith. And I mean not in a good way. But we can reduce our faith to kind of simply like a, like a moral ethic or standard or way of living. Like either we're doing good things and that's good or doing bad things and that's bad. And that's sort of the, the extent of our faith. Now, now hear me. Our faith comes with an ethic to live, a way of living in this world, a moral code, etc., 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 etc. But see, it's more than just that. Or, or perhaps I've learned that we can reduce our faith down, and, and I don't mean in a good way. We can reduce our faith down to sort of just spiritual experience. The feeling of whatever a person should feel if they're feeling like they're feeling like they're close to God. And if we feel the feeling, we feel like we're close to God. And if we don't feel the feeling, we feel like we're not close to God. And hear me, our faith comes with experiences. I mean, I just mentioned one where Christ meets you and me. It comes with moments of emotion. But see, it's a lot more than that. Have you ever noticed how the feeling of spiritual experience you can get from other places, not the church? You can feel the feeling of emotional experience at the gym. But see, the fact that our faith is much more objective than that. It is about a person named Jesus who has accomplished some things for me and you, who gives himself to you in the preaching of his word, who gives himself to you in the fellowship of other believers, who gives himself to you in bread and in wine. See, the certainty of those things can really steady you in dark places. See, Christianity is about a Christ that has met you and me. Christianity is about this Jesus who has met you and me. This Jesus has done things for you and me. And Paul is here boldly testifying to it. He's gone to the cross. He's been raised from the dead. And he's not afraid to boldly proclaim it. Which leads to the third part of Paul's speech. If part one is Jesus met me, if part two is Jesus has done things for me and you, part three is Jesus is calling you. Look at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. 
But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. See, Festus is a Roman governor. All this talk about the promises of God through the Jewish people and all this talk about a Savior that would suffer and, and all this talk about the resurrection from the dead one day and all this stuff to, to Festus is just kind of like Jewish religious mumbo-jumbo crazy talk. But it's interesting how Paul in this story simply says to him, I'm not crazy. And then he turns the attention to Agrippa. See, Agrippa, even though he has been educated in Roman courts, see, Agrippa is a Jewish person. He knows these things. Perhaps when he was a little boy, who knows, maybe he had seen or encountered some of Jesus' work. Perhaps he's met people along the way who had met Christ. And it's interesting that Paul puts Agrippa on trial and basically says to him, Agrippa, you are casually curious about Jesus? See, it's Agrippa who asked to be a part of this trial. He thought it was kind of curiously interesting. Paul says, Agrippa, your casual curiosity, it is now time to yield and to yield to Christ. Look at Paul, verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and now I speak to him boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa says, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Some versions will say that Agrippa says to Paul, are you trying to convert me? See, Agrippa gets the message. Paul goes on to say, in verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am. In other words, he is actually answering by saying, Agrippa, yeah. And it's interesting that we don't really see Agrippa yield. From this moment, he will simply walk off the pages of the biblical story. And I think Luke frames it that way on purpose as a storytelling technique. See, because when you read a text like this, you suddenly see that you are Agrippa, right? That the message of Jesus has now been pointed to you, and it's Luke's way of saying, O oh, reader of my story, what about you? If Agrippa won't listen, will you listen? If Agrippa decides he's not interested, are you interested? If it was time for Agrippa to move from casual curiosity to Jesus, is it time, O oh reader, for you to do the same thing?
In other words, if Christianity is about Jesus having met us and Jesus having done things for us, the obvious invitation from a speech like that is to listen for how this same Christ might be calling to you. I do wonder if, perhaps in a room this size, there are those who've been kind of casually curious about Jesus, but in no substantial way yielded to his lordship. So maybe this text is a call for the first time to yield to him. But maybe this passage is also a call for the, I don't know, 338th time to yield to him. That's how many times we've come in and had a worship service at Grace Fellowship, the 338th tonight. So because in a fresh way, every time the news of Jesus is put before us, when we hear the news with our ears, it is a call for us to turn to him and yield to him in fresh ways. So in a room this size, could there be those tonight, and I'm talking to myself here, that Jesus is meeting, that Jesus is calling, that Jesus is seeking. See, Christianity is not about a feeling of feeling whatever we're supposed to feel. Christianity is about Christ, who's done some, some things and desires to meet you. Let's pray.